You're listening to Restoration Church's sermon series, Why Family Matters. If you have any questions or want to get connected, go to our website at restoration-church.ca. In Luke 14, as we conclude the series, as we've looked at for the last couple of weeks, Jesus is sitting around a table with people who are experts of Old Testament law, those who are the religious order and power of the day called the Pharisees. They're sitting around a table and the advantage that we get from this picture is that as Jesus sits with them, we get this stark contrast between what matters to Jesus and what matters to everyone else at the table. And before we think, as we've already talked about, before we think that it's just, this is what matters when throwing a dinner party or when inviting people into your home, it's more than that. As we looked at next week, there's a collision of kingdoms between the values and concerns of the kingdom of God and the values and concerns of the kingdom of the earth. This is the, you're going to love this, Kale. This is the, as Jesus sits around this table, this is the heaven meets earth like a sloppy, wet kiss. Not an unforeseen one, but a sloppy, wet one. Last week, we looked at that verse 12. Jesus says, when we have a party, don't invite those who can repay, but invite those who can't, and you'll be repaid in the kingdom. Well, for everyone else at that table, that was not their practice for showing hospitality. And I always kind of think when I'm reading through this passage, when Jesus says something that really sticks home, what usually happens? For you, if maybe a teacher or a parent, you know, says something to you, you're in trouble, there's tension in the room, and there's just awkward silence, right? There's just an awkward silence. And I love this guy in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things in this tense moment. He pipes up and says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Almost like to break the tension. Okay, despite our differences, despite the moment right now, isn't it great that we're all going to be in the kingdom celebrating together? I like him because he's kind of like me in a tense moment. I don't like awkward silence and tense moments. The guy, who, when you're sitting around the table and there's this awkwardness, you can sense it. It's, it's the guy who stands up and is like, okay, who wants some dessert? Let's bring out the dessert. You know, just break that tension right down. Let's, everyone's at ease. I love this guy. To smooth things over because there's an assumption that they would all be there. And maybe this guy and how Jesus responds to his comment he's going to quickly realize maybe he should have kept his mouth shut. So starting at verse 16, Jesus is going to respond to that comment with a story. And it says this in verse 16 of Luke 14. But he, Jesus says to him, a man once gave a great banquet and it's, he, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go inspect it. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. And I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife. Therefore, I can't come. 
So the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Yeah, maybe the guy who piped up and said, isn't it great that we're all going to be in the kingdom should have just dealt with the awkward silence. So a man throws a banquet. Jesus, again, he's not just telling them how to throw a nice dinner party. The banquet was a picture of life with God. The life, the way it was intended to be. That's the picture of the banquet all the way through the Bible. In Proverbs 9, when it, the wisdom of God is speaking out and inviting people, this is what it means to obey God and to live life with God. In Proverbs 9, there's the invitation going out to everyone saying, follow me, listen to me. The steak is ready. The wine is prepared. You're Your place has been prepared for you. Come and enjoy fellowship with God. And then the next chapter in Luke 15, after this one, there's going to be, Jesus is going to tell another parable where there's a son who goes far away. And when he returns, and now there's fellowship, there's reconciliation between the father and the son, between God and people. They throw a party, and there's meat and wine and dancing and joy. Do you see what the Bible's describing here? That's life with God. Life the way it was intended to be that tastes good, where there's happiness and fun and intimacy. That's life with God. And so when the master of this banquet says to his servant, go out to everyone who's been invited and say to them, come for everything is now ready. The meat's been taken off the grill. Mushrooms have been sautéed. Because for me, it's not a party without sautéed mushrooms. There's a place with your name on it. You know, in a wedding when you go and there's a little place at your table, here's the plate, here's the glasses, and there's your name. There's a place at the table that's been prepared for you. You've been expected. It's an amazing, beautiful picture of what happens when God invites us to life with him, there's warmth and intimacy, peace, happiness, and chaos may be, uh, may be all around us in this world. But in fellowship with God, there's warmth and intimacy and order and peace. Of course, there's a problem in the parable. As a servant goes to inform the guests, what does it say in verse 18? This beautiful banquet's been prepared. Come for everything's ready. Your name is prepared. We're going to invite you in. We are going to be the most hospitable. This is going to be amazing. It's going to taste great. What happens in verse 18? What does it say? They all began alike to make excuses. One says, I bought a field. Got to go see it. Two, I bought five yoke of oxen. Got to go inspect it. You know, a field and oxen, 
same now like we're talking about upper class people we're talking about people who can afford property who can afford oxen normal people couldn't do that in that day <laughs> nor today three so third person says i just got married this is landed i just got married man i can't come anymore the servant comes back reports it to the master and the host is not happy he's angry let me stop there for a second. Because at first glance, when I read this story over, I thought, those seem like pretty reasonable excuses to me. I mean, in Waterloo Region, you go out and buy a field, that's going to cost you like $20 billion nowadays with the market the way it is. Like, you buy a field, that thing, you got to, like, basically you're trading your entire life away for that field. So, yeah, I'm going to go out and see it. I've invested a lot into that field. Even now, I bought some, I bought some, well, this is hard in our, <laughs> our culture, but I bought, bought all these animals. I got to go inspect them. And even more so when I read, I'm like, yeah, the dude just got married. And so for us, if we hosted a party and landed, we invited Landon, Landon over, Landon's like, Aaron, sorry, man, I can't come. I, you know, <laughs> Laura wants me home. <laughs> can't come anymore. How would I respond to that? You'd get the classic Aaron text. And if you're in the business of texting me, at some point you've received an Aaron text that says, no worries. Or the, just the NP, no problem. Okay? Send it, NP, done. It seems reasonable. And how most of us be like, okay, you know, we get it. Stuff, life happens. Stuff happens. But in this cultural narrative, you got to understand why the host is so upset. Remember, there's no watches in this time. No one's wearing an Apple watch on their hand. Be like, it's 6 o'clock, time to go. No, no one's got Google calendars synced so that everyone knows when the actual event is supposed to be. What, how this would happen was there was a preliminary invite sent out that you would have already responded to saying, either yes or no, I will be at the banquet. And then there's no, maybe you come from culture, your family isn't huge on time, when you're just like, ah, oh, it's going to happen at some point this evening. Just be ready when it happens. So, but you've already responded, yes, I will attend. You've said, I would, I would love to be in your presence. I'd love to spend time with you. So they do all the work of preparing for your arrival, and then when it's actually time to come, they would send the servant out and say, all those have been invited, all those have responded to the affirmative, everything's ready. Come on in. So you understand what's going on. These people who refused the invite, they actually, or who refused to come, they actually responded to the invitation, but had no intention of actually going. I think a lot of people in church, we've said, uh, yeah, no problem. I'll follow God. We respond to the invite. But when God actually calls us to himself, they're like, meh, I got something else going on. Do you understand what's going on here? They responded to the invitation but had no intention of actually going in or at least looking for any reason not to go. Have you ever invited someone to your house where it was pretty obvious that they were so non-committal that, that you know they don't want to actually go? They're like, hey, why don't you come to my house? Well, who else is going? Who's going to be there? Uh, I don't really like that person. Who else is going to be there? I got to check my schedule. 
I might have something, you know what I mean? Maybe I'll, maybe next Tuesday I'll be free. It's like, okay, I get it. You don't want to, just tell me you don't want to come. I get it. With this cultural narrative in mind, the excuses now seem pretty hollow. It's like, okay, so you bought a field. You can inspect the field anytime you want. You bought cattle. You can inspect the, you knew you had responded to the invite. You knew what was happening. You can do that anytime. Even the marriage one now seems very hollow. You knew you were getting married and you responded to the invite anyway and now you're saying, well, I'm married, I can't come. With this understanding, we kind of get the anger of the host, right? He's done everything he can to welcome, to invite, and prepare for their arrival. Imagine your wedding where you invite 200 guests, you pay the money, you decorate. Those of you who just had wedding, you know how much work it is and how much months of preparation it is to throw this big party where there's photographers and, and decorations and food and, and all, of, all of the stuff that goes along with preparing this grand banquet. Seating arrangements. They still do that at weddings, right? Where you come in and they're seating, this person sits at this table, Yeah. Imagine doing that with 200 people. The day of the wedding comes, and all of a sudden you receive 200 texts on your phone saying, sorry, man, something came up. Can't come. Sorry, you know, my, my, wife, my wife doesn't want me to come anymore, so I can't come. Like, how do you feel now? They've already responded. Yeah, I'd be pretty angry. I think it begs the question, why did they respond this way? In the context of this narrative and who the people sitting around this table are with Jesus, I think basically what's going on here, the invitation wasn't weighty to them. Like they were looking for any reason not to take the invitation seriously. Everything else in life seemed more important at the time. It just wasn't weighty to them. With the people that are sitting around this table, the attitude that comes with a a non-weighty response to the invitation of God is they were self-perceived as deserving of it. We are the ones who are expected to be with God to get the invitation. Of course, we're the deserving ones. We're the religious power of the time. We're the one who teach other people about Yahweh. We're the ones who deserve to be there. That kind of self-righteousness, it destroys our response to God. Like if we think we're deserving of God's invitation, it's not that important then. Everything else in life is more important. Pride takes weight away from God's invitation. And it's impossible to respond to God if your heart is full of pride, for the invitation is not a gift. It's a distraction from everything else you've got going on in life. I do think there's something we, we, we need to wrestle with just doing some meditating on this this past week. 
And there's so much in our world that, you know, as we look back in the church, and Colin mentioned this in communion, so much that's happened throughout history that, you mean, you look back and you're like, what was going on? And there's shame. And no, we don't want to cancel that. We actually need to remember what happened so that we can grow and learn. There's a quote, a famous quote, that I won't tell you. Those who, I'm going to butcher it. Those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. That's what it is, I think. It's my Aaron's paraphrase. We can't forget history. We have to wrestle with it so that we can grow and learn. And I think in how we respond to these type of situations where we look back and there seems to be a sense of enlightenment or how do we do better, I think that's great and we, we have to grow as Christians. What can also happen though, there's a pride that happens in your own heart. Like if you try to respond to those issues with a proud heart, what tends to happen is you point your finger at everyone else without examining your own life. Does that make sense? It's like everyone else has to change before me. Or it should be the other way around. Jesus says, don't deal with the, you know, the speck in your brother's eye when there's a log in your own. And so there has to be, we have to wrestle with the past and how, there is, and how even the church has been involved with horrible things. But we also have to wrestle with that in our own heart first. That's what a humble heart does. So there's a, there's a desire for righteousness, but if it's motivated by pride, it's motivated just by a self-righteousness. It demands change from everyone else before yourself. Guys, I'm telling you, if pride is full of your heart, the invitation, how do you respond to God, to life with God? It's just a distraction to you, not a gift. Jesus concludes at the end in verse 24, for those who refused his invite, it says, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. What Jesus says is, they will have no fellowship with God. The question we need to wrestle with is, for you, as you examine your own heart, are you missing out on what God has prepared for you? The sweetness of fellowship and life with God because of pride that's dominated, like that you somehow deserve it? Jesus says in verse 21, in response to those who had given excuse. So the servant came and reported these things. The master is angry and says to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. So he says, go to the streets and more importantly, lanes of the city. The lanes of the city represented the places that no one wanted to look. Where the poor and the lame and the blind, they, where they inhabited you know, for when a tourist walks down a street, even now, like the big streets, they're full of what, what you want people to look at, but down those dark alleyways, it's where the city wants those who, you know, they don't want them to be seen, those who should be ignored. But the master says, go to those lanes, the dark alleyways, where the people who you would never expect to be invited to a banquet, go and invite them, the unseen. The servant comes back to the master and the master says, there's still room. Or the servant says, there's still room. So the master says, 
And the master says to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges. And I love this word, compel people to come in that my house may be full. The unseen has been invited. There's still room in in the kingdom of God. So the master says, go and invite even the outsider. Go outside the city. Those who have no knowledge of the master, those who have no context of this banquet, those who have never even heard of this banquet before, go out outside the city to the outsider and invite them to come into my banquet. Actually, compel them to come into my banquet. A couple things to note. This story actually represents the whole plan of God up until now in church history. What was going on, I think the first application of this story is that those who you would think would respond, God gives an invitation. The religious ones of Israel refused Jesus when he came. So as you see in the Gospels, Jesus then interacts with the unseen of Israel, those who were blind, lame, deaf, those who no one else would, would give any weight to. Jesus says, you come and have fellowship with God. But then he actually goes outside of the nation of Israel to those who didn't even know God, who we term as Gentiles, you and I, here in Canada now 2,000 years later. Go to the outsider that has no idea about God. See, I think that's what Jesus is looking at is the full plan of God, and praise be to God for his plan of inviting the unseen and the outsider to be a part of his life. But there's also another application here that we as a church have to wrestle with. Because we as a church continue to invite people into that banquet, right? We've talked about this a lot throughout the series. That the church is this outpost of the kingdom of God where people should look inside the banquet and see this is the way God was in, this is the way life was intended to be with God. So we as the church continue to invite people into the banquet. In a sense, we are that servant in the parable where the master says, go out and compel the people to come into my banquet. We are the ones where God has given us a, a, a mission to go out and compel the world to experience life with God. To go to the ignored. To go to the outsider. And I love this word. Compel them to come in. I did a lot of wrestling through this word and what that means for my life. The word compel doesn't mean to be forced into it. But it comes awfully close. Like, there's an insistence in our hospitality with the world. There's an insistence when we give the invitation to know God personally. That's what compel means. (laughs) It means to be regularly invited, to be repeatedly invited, to go to certain places in the laneways to the outsider and compel them repeatedly and insistently to experience life with God. <laughs> I was wrestling with this because we all grew, we, maybe you didn't, or those watching, maybe you didn't, but I grew up from day one in Canadian culture. Where the first thought when you interact with other people is what? I don't want to bother them. Maybe they're busy. You know, they probably got something. They probably got something else planned. 
I, what, I don't want to be that guy to like, you know, be boisterous or to, you know, get in their way. That's kind of our Canadian culture automatically speaking to it, like that it's so wrong to bother people with the gospel. Is that your experience too? Like there's not necessarily fear for me to talk about Jesus. I just don't want to bother people. Like I think I'm, I'm being a burden on them just by confronting them with the greatest invitation that they'll ever receive. But we have to wrestle with this because this means our hospitality and how we invite people into the life with God is we are insistent upon it. I want you to wrestle about this even even after the end of the service. Just think through, like, what does that look like to compel? What does that mean? In the context of this parable, when he says go outside of the city and compel them to come, I think one obvious one is You've got to give context to who this God actually is. They don't know. More and more, and can't, they, they don't know who God is. So you have to tell them about him. Like, this is who God is, and this is why you can trust him. But I think the big one that we have to wrestle with is, <laughs> those of you who tried to talk, to talk about Jesus, most people are going to take some convincing of it. The people that we generally reach are almost like, they're almost begging you to get out of the way and we're the ones holding them back. They're almost like, please let me experience life with God. And you're like, are you sure? You sure you want that? It's going to take some convincing. You guys experience that? Like, why trust this master? Man, there's been some people that we've seen that claim to have been a part of that banquet have been pretty messed up. Why do I want to be a part of that banquet? It's going to take some convincing to trust the master of the party. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, We know the fear of God, but they don't, so we seek to persuade them. I'm not talking about eloquence, by the way. I'm not talking about you have to read all books of William Lane Craig and have your reasonable theology worked out in your head completely down, like point A, point B, therefore point C, and you're convinced and you're going to come and be a part of this life. That's not what I'm talking about. The convincing, the most powerful convincing that you have is, is you and your life. I'm going to close with this. especially as we've wrestled a lot with fellowship and hospitality and the power of hospitality in the church. There's a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Maybe you've read her books. She, she wrote an awesome book that you should read called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, all about Christian hospitality. Awesome testimony. Well, Rosaria Butterfield was an English professor at an Ivy League school who hated Christianity, like despised it. She thought Christians were hateful, judgmental, unmerciful, and they hated anyone to do with the LGBT community, any woman. They just, they hated those people. That was her perspective of Christians. She wrote an article in the early 90s. You can still read it before she actually became a Christian, pronouncing like Christians to be the scum of our society. 
Like, if only we can get rid of these Christians, therefore our society would flourish. Of course, in response to that article, she got thousands of hate mail from Christians. With this argumentation, like, this is not the way it is. You're, you're, you're crazy. But she responded to one person. You know what that person was different than everyone else? You know what it was? It wasn't a critique or a rebuke or anger. You know what she responded to? A dinner invitation. Come over to my house. Have dinner with us. And so she did. I'll read her what she says in her testimony. She says something happened in those dinner invitations as she kept going to this same people. Ken and his wife, Floy. Normal Christians. Ken and Floy. Something unexpected happened. The people that I had declared as hated, we became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges We talked openly about sexuality and politics. This is really important. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They didn't treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and full of mercy. And because Ken and Floy did not invite me to church and invited me into their home, I knew it was safe to be friends. Do you hear what she says? They didn't just come to my church, come into my home, come into my life. She goes on and that awakened it, awakened it, sense that she should re-examine her Bible. So she started reading the Bible over and over and over again and over a period of time began to change. She summarizes her testimony like this. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. This is the woman who wrote an article. You can still, you can still search on Google about the scum of Christian, Christianity in North America. She says, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. And Jesus triumphed. I was a broken mess, and my conversion was a train wreck. I didn't want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, He could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first and then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace and then in community and today in the shelter of my church and covenant family, there is one who calls me wife and many who call me mother.
All because one who showed Christian hospitality instead of offense. That's the power of what we offer. We are the servant who says, come in and experience life with God. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that as a church, we would wrestle with this. To compel the world, as this servant in this parable, to go to the highways, to go to the lanes, where the unseen are, where the outsider is, and compel them insistently to experience life with God. It's a power to change someone's life. Out from the chaos and darkness into light and peace and joy. Lord, I pray as we've wrestled these last number of weeks that, man, I, I pray that we would be a hospitable church. That our first reaction wouldn't be offense and anger, but our first reaction would be mercy and open hands. Because that's what you did for me. Lord, I pray that it would start with me. That I would be full of humility in my response to you. I do not deserve this invitation. Yet you've freely given it. Lord, I pray that I would respond with humility and that I would respond with grace to the world, begging them to come in. Not just do the Sunday service, but before that, to come into my life, into my home, where they are treated as family and friends. Lord, may we do this. We pray for all these things in your great name. Amen.